This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recorded by Peter Yearsley. Three Men in a Boat To Say Nothing of the Dog by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter 15 including Household Duties, Love of Work, The Old River Hand, What He Does, and What He Tells You He Has Done, Skepticism of the New Generation, Early Boating Recollections, Rafting, George Does the Thing in Style, The Old Boatman, His Method, So Calm, So Full of Peace, the Beginner Punting A Sad Accident Pleasures of Friendship Sailing My First Experience Possible Reason Why We Were Not Drowned We woke late the next morning, and at Harris's earnest desire partook of a plain breakfast with non-dainties. Then we cleaned up and put everything straight. A continual labour which was beginning to afford me a pretty clear insight into a question that had often posed me, namely, how a woman with the work of only one house on her hands manages to pass away her time. And at about ten we set out on what we had determined should should be a good day's journey. We agreed that we would pull this morning, as a change from towing, and Harris thought the best arrangement would be that George and I should scull, and he steer. I did not chime in with this idea at all. I said I thought Harris would have been showing a more proper spirit if he had suggested that he and George should work and let me rest a bit. It seemed to me that I was doing more than my fair share of the work on this trip, and I was beginning to feel strongly on the subject. It always does seem to me that I am doing more work than I should do. It is not that I object to the work, mind you. I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. I love to keep it by me. The idea of getting rid of it nearly breaks my heart. You cannot give me too much work. To accumulate work has become almost a passion with me. My study is so full of it now that there is hardly an inch of room for any more. I shall have to throw out a wing soon. And I am careful of my work too. Why, some of the work that I have by me now has been in my possession for years and years, and there isn't a finger mark on it. I take a great pride in my work. I take it down now and then, and dust it. No man keeps his work in a better state of preservation than I do. But though I crave for work, I still like to be fair. I do not ask for more than my proper share. But I get it without asking for it, at least so it appears to me. And this worries me. George says he does not think I need trouble myself on the subject. He thinks it is only my 
over-scrupulous nature that makes me fear I am having more than my due, and that, as a matter of fact, I don't have half as much as I ought. But I expect he only says this to comfort me. In a boat I have always noticed that it is the fixed idea of each member of the crew that he is doing everything. Harris's notion was that it was he alone who had been working, and that both George and I had been imposing upon him. George, on the other hand, ridiculed the idea of Harris's having done anything more than eat and sleep, and had a cast-iron opinion that it was he, George himself, who had done all the labour worth speaking of. He said he had never been out with such a couple of lazy skulks as Harris and I. That amused Harris. "'Fancy old George talking about work!' he laughed. "'Why, about half an hour of it would kill him! "'Have you ever seen George work?' he added, turning to me. "'I agreed with Harris that I never had, most certainly not, since we had started on this trip. "'Well, I don't see how you can know much about it, one way or the other,' George retorted on Harris.' "'for I'm blessed if you haven't been asleep half the time. "'Have you ever seen Harris fully awake, except at mealtime?' "'asked George, addressing me. "'Truth compelled me to support George. "'Harris had been very little good in the boat, "'so far as helping was concerned, from the beginning. "'Well, hang it all! "'I've done more than old Jay, anyhow,' rejoined Harris.' "'Well, you couldn't very well have done less,' added George. "'I suppose Jay thinks he is the passenger,' continued Harris. "'And that was their gratitude to me "'for having brought them and their wretched old boat "'all the way up from Kingston, "'and for having superintended and managed everything for them, "'and taken care of them, and slaved for them. "'It is the way of the world.' We settled the present difficulty by arranging that Harris and George should scull up past Reading, and that I should tow the boat on from there. Pulling a heavy boat against a strong stream has few attractions for me now. There was a time, long ago, when I used to clamour for the hard work. Now I like to give the youngsters a chance. I notice that most of the old river hands are similarly retiring whenever there is any stiff pulling to be done. You can always tell the old river hand by the way in which he stretches himself out upon the cushions at the bottom of the boat, and encourages the rowers by telling them anecdotes about the marvellous feats he performed last season. "'Call what you're doing hard work,' he drawls between his contented whiffs addressing the two perspiring novices, who have been grinding away steadily upstream for the last hour and a half. Why, Jim Biffles and Jack and I, last season, pulled up from Marlow to Goring in one afternoon, never stopped once. Do you remember that, Jack? Jack, who has made himself a bed up in the prow of all the rugs and coats he can collect, and who has been lying there asleep for the last two hours, 
partially wakes up on being thus appealed to and recollects all about the matter, and also remembers that there was an unusually strong stream against them all the way, likewise a stiff wind. "'About uh, thirty-four miles, I suppose it must have been,' adds the first speaker, reaching down another cushion to put under his head. "'No, no, don't exaggerate, Tom,' murmurs Jack reprovingly. Thirty-three at the outside.' And Jack and Tom, quite exhausted by this conversational effort, drop off to sleep once more and the two simple-minded youngsters at the skulls feel quite proud of being allowed to row such wonderful oarsmen as Jack and Tom, and strain away harder than ever. When I was a young man, I used to listen to these tales from my elders, and take them in, and swallow them, and digest every word of them, and then come up for more. But the new generation do not seem to have the simple faith of the old times. We, George, Harris, and myself, took a raw and up with us once last season, and we plied him with the customary stretches about the wonderful things we had done all the way up. We gave him all the regular ones, the time-honoured lies that have done duty up the river with every boating man for years past, and added seven entirely original ones that we had invented for ourselves, including a really quite likely story, founded, to a certain extent, on an all-but-true episode which had actually happened, in a modified degree, some years ago, to friends of ours, a story that a mere child could have believed without injuring itself much. And that young man mocked at them all, and wanted us to repeat the feats then and there, and to bet us ten to one that we didn't. We got to chatting about our rowing experiences this morning, and to recounting stories of our first efforts in the art of oarsmanship. My own earliest boating recollection is of five of us contributing threepence each, and taking out a curiously constructed craft on the Regent's Park Lake, drying ourselves subsequently in the park-keeper's lodge. After that, having acquired a taste for the water, I did a good deal of rafting in various suburban brickfields, an exercise providing more interest and excitement than might be imagined, especially when you are in the middle of the pond, and the proprietor of the materials of which the raft is constructed suddenly appears on the bank with a big stick in his hand. Your first sensation on seeing this gentleman is that, somehow or other, you don't feel equal to company and conversation, and that, if you could do so without appearing rude, you would rather avoid meeting him, and your object is therefore to get off on the opposite side of the pond to which he is, and to go home quietly and quickly, pretending not to see him. He, on the contrary, is yearning to take you by the hand and talk to you. It appears that he knows your father, and is intimately acquainted with yourself, but this does not draw you towards him. 
He says he'll teach you to take his boards and make a raft of them. But seeing that you know how to do this pretty well already, the offer, though doubtless kindly meant, seems a superfluous one on his part, and you are reluctant to put him to any trouble by accepting it. His anxiety to meet you, however, is proof against all your coolness, and the energetic manner in which he dodges up and down the pond so as to be on the spot to greet you when you land is really quite flattering. If he be of a stout and short-winded build, you can easily avoid his advances, but when he is of the youthful and long-legged type, a meeting is inevitable. The interview is, however, extremely brief, most of the conversation being on his part, your remarks being mostly of an exclamatory and monosyllabic order, and as soon as you can tear yourself away, you do so. I devoted some three months to rafting, and being then as proficient as there was any need to be at that branch of the art, I determined to go in for rowing proper, and joined one of the Lee boating clubs. Being out in a boat on the River Lee, especially on Saturday afternoons, soon makes you smart at handling a craft, and spry at escaping being run down by roughs, or swamped by barges, and it also affords plenty of opportunity for acquiring the most prompt and graceful method of lying down flat at the bottom of the boat, so as to avoid being chucked out into the river by passing tow-lines. But it does not give you style. It was not till I came to the Thames that I got style. My style of rowing is very much admired now. People say it is so quaint. George never went near the water until he was sixteen. Then he and eight other gentlemen of about the same age went down in a body to Kew one Saturday, with the idea of hiring a boat there and pulling to Richmond and back. One of their number, a shock-headed youth named Joskins, who had once or twice taken out a boat on the Serpentine, told them it was jolly fun boating. The tide was running out pretty rapidly when they reached the landing stage, and there was a stiff breeze blowing across the river, but this did not trouble them at all, and they proceeded to select their boat. There was an eight-oared racing outrigger drawn up on the stage. That was the one that took their fancy. They said they'd have that one, please. The boatman was away, and only his boy was in charge. The boy tried to damp their ardour for the outrigger, and showed them two or three very comfortable-looking boats of the family party build. But those would not do at all. The outrigger was the boat they thought they would look best in. 